welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh and Andrew Kern. How's it going to all of you? Good. Do you ask a question to someone or of someone? Wow. Prepositions are so tricky. They are so tricky. So malleable. You, you know, I have heard... To any- I know a lot of people who are from other countries who speak English, and they will all talk about how prepositions are the most difficult thing to master. Because other languages use prepositions very differently. I find that fascinating. Like, there, in other languages, prepositions actually have meaningful content to them. Well, Ours maybe, are almost... But, but the, I mean, if you choose arbitrary. to say, do you ask a question to someone or of someone, I mean, you know... You know there's no like real reason behind that. So yeah. You just pick something, right? And so some right. other country I picks disagree. a different. Well, all right, but I, I, I can't think of an example. I'm almost sorry. Go ahead. Well, I'm trying to think of an example. There's some very specific examples in French of the way that they would use prepositions. Um, that just escapes me now because I wasn't prepared to have this talk. But but they're a little they just, bit they're a little bit firmer. You didn't, you didn't know like that we were dropping broadside and doing close reads of, of English <laughs> of grammar for this week. No, no. I think I'm not technically, for this David, we just lost out. 98% of our audience. <laughs> if, if, we, David, if we don't understand prepositions, we'll never understand why. There you go. Way to bring it back. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> Tim, I think go ahead. technically, David, the answer to your question is, do you ask questions of your friends? No, you ask questions which your friends. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. Thanks. Yep. Great. Okay, what? Right. No. <laughs> you ask questions of your friends. Andrew Kern. <laughs> Andrew well, I don't have Kern. any friends. That's just how I avoid the whole debate. Do you make demands? <laughs> exactly. Our problem our problem is that English borrows everything. So so when we when we use a preposition like of, it's from the Anglo Saxon. When we use a word like question it's from the Latin, and then we got to merge all that together, and it's confusing. I agree with that. But you ask questions of. All right, Do well, that's been settled. Que- <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you put questions to, you ask questions You of. can put questions to, yes. I'm waiting for the Andrew Kern Guide to Prepositions. When is that coming out? <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Can't David, wait for that one. As soon as uh, I can get someone to write it for me, David, I'll write it. David, contain your excitement. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> hey, so imagining images and you guys, you time. guys, you guys, prepositions are fantastically interesting. You don't even have to be a nerd to get psyched about prepositions. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I guess. Uh, uh, <laughs> so should we talk about something if you else? Value, if you value relationships, you love prepositions. That's what they're there for. Well, I value I value the relationship that we have with our sponsor, and I think we should go ahead and give them expertly done. Give them expertly done. You know what I? (laughs) You know this is going to be hilarious. I literally just opened another Dr Pepper and sprayed it everywhere again. It's becoming. (laughs) It's becoming a thing. I didn't do, do it on purpose. Them beforehand? No, I mean it's one of those mini ones. You know, they're like eight ounces instead of twelve or six. Somebody or is clearly shaking. Yeah, and Graham I'm, is shaking. I'm it. being sabotaged here. Um, well, anyway. So I, my question is that, that you didn't do it on purpose, or you didn't do it purposely. I did it <laughs> on did purpose. It which purpose? <laughs> <laughs> with purpose or which purpose? 
Which purpose? They're prepositions. Hey, Tim. Yeah. Do you th- are do you think maybe you have some resources potentially available this fall for ninth or twelfth grade students who would benefit from Ooh. engaging seminar style grade books course that would help them earn two high school credits? Is that something you can wait? Wait, the wait, wait is... is that four high school students or two high school students? <laughs> well, it's a little bit of both. The way high school students. I, I, I think it's definitely all of the above. Uh, Tim, which high school students? Yes. Do, so maybe you, maybe you're offering four different all high school above? courses. Would care? Would you care to expound on the possibility of, of this happening this fall, possibly well, David, with our friends at the Scola Academy from Classical that's Academic exactly Press? Exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. I'll be offering four classes through Scola Academy beginning this fall. And David, uh, I wonder if you're curious about which four classes they might. Not take. really. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> the four classes that I'll be offering are a combination of literature and history classes. So the kind of four um, eras that we'll cover are ancient Greek and Roman literature and history, medieval and Renaissance literature and history, British and American literature and history, and world literature and history. And like you said, David, the all be seminar classes, which is, do you guys feel this way? If you could, would you have all of your classes be seminar classes? Granted, you probably have to salt and pepper them a little bit with like a historical context lecture every once in a while, but is that everyone's preferred learning style or is it just mine? I mean, it's certainly mine. Although, on the other hand, I think we may have just lost our other two co-hosts here. I think they might be <laughs> off somewhere. Are you there, Angelina? I'm here. Okay. Interesting. I'm, I guess, I'm here. Oh, all right. So, Tim, where might someone learn more about this course from Scola Academy? Great question. These courses? Go to and that is spelled S-C-H-O-L-E Academy. You know, it's funny. Every time you start saying that you're going to teach a class on ancient literature, the way it sounds uh-huh. coming through like through the internet, I always think it sounds like you're saying anxious literature. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I think of when which, I think of Scully. Which, yeah. That's modern. Yeah, right. I was, was going to say, which might be the perfect segue here to our story. <laughs> the bright set of it probably is. You're good at the segues, David. Well, it's I got mean, a lot of practice reining in conversations. Yeah, you can tell. Yeah. Dinner table at it's the because he understands he understands how prepositions work, and that every preposition <laughs> points out a relationship, so it makes it easy to transition. I have a feeling we're going to have a, a a thread upon which there will be I, lots of twitches this week. Um, Wait, you can have to add an. Ooh, that was good, also, David. <laughs> David's on fire. An you used two prepositions. <laughs> No, Andrew, yeah, I know you're one too many. Addendum to your reading guide now, though. You need another highlighter color just to highlight all the prepositions in a book. Oh, the whole book would turn whatever color that is. That sounds dreadful. Possibly. It does. So we are here to talk about Brideshead Revisited, uh, Part Two, Chapters Two and Three. If you're reading the King the, the King James version of the Brideshead mm. Revisited, if you're not mm-hmm. reading and you're reading the NIV version of it. The, You're new, the new international version, version then, then I think it's part three, chapters uh, two and three. Either way, it's yeah. the... They're reading like the comic book version of the Bible. <laughs> they don't have the edition, apparently. Have you been following the Facebook conversations where people are putting photos of what their book says versus what our books say? That's crazy. 
You know, they're not I, even so reading the same book. I did a little research on this, and I don't know that I got the the authorized account of this exactly. But one thing that I read, one of the things that I read was that uh, he was self conscious about how loquacious the original edition was, because he had written huh. it when he was an invalid, and he felt like maybe he got a little bit verbose. And so he went back, and when he revised it, he was trying to tone that down a wee bit. Really? Yeah. See, I, I would buy that, except that the, the screenshots people were sending were of additions. So where Addition. we talked... Yeah, so where we talked last week about how odd it was that Charles and his wife are reunited after two years and they don't have marital relations, other people's books had a paragraph added to it which said they did. Huh. That's, people were saying, I think our I'm whole thinking there must wrong. be three because... Maybe there's a fan well, fiction got, version out I've there. Got, it, it's confusing to me. I've got the two versions that we've been talking about. I've got in paper, in, in hardback or cloth bond, whatever... I've got the the fifty the forty five version, and then on my Kindle thing I've got the fifty nine version or whatever it is, and I consistently find that there's stuff in the forty five that's been removed from the fifty nine, huh. and those those passages that they were posting were all in my hard in my cloth bound, but not in my Kindle. Huh. Well, what do you make of that? Huh. Well, then I don't know. I'm what wondering if there's a third. Maybe you guys bought an abridgment. <laughs> well, let me, well, no, here, mostly, mostly, page... mostly people are saying, mostly people are saying that ours has more stuff. But this was the first time where I saw that theirs had more. That, yeah, maybe mm. that one person, maybe they, they some, maybe somebody does have an abridged. Yeah, but I have that in mind in my forty-five. The 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 the, the um, was it the ship scene? No, uh, where, uh, where, you know what? I'm going to pull up the screenshot right here on my well, tablet. So the, the original, internet. okay, so the, the book was originally published in 1944 um, with, a, and then I think it was published in America in 1945. It was renewed, oh. it was renewed by uh, Laura Waugh in 72 and 73. Um, the version I have was reissued by Back Bay Books through Little Brown and Company in 1999. Um and I believe that is an American version of the 45 edition. So the I don't know what the 15 how the 59 fits into that. Wonder if there's an English and an American from the first, and then there's the updated one. So there's three total. Well, I think we should just not worry too much about it at this point. Um, we can't, you know, it's kind of beyond a curiosity. I don't know what we can do about it. Maybe and they did that on purpose so we'd get into exegesis. Or we'd buy more. Because <laughs> <laughs> now I want to have all of them and lay them out next to each other. Um, well, for the sake of time, we should probably yeah. just dive into the conversation on these chapters. And these are uh, the further adventures of Julia and Charles. Um, these two chapters. And in the first chapter that we're going to re- talk about today, we have his viewing where Charles is viewing that, that Celia sets up for him. And then we have his old pal, Anthony Blanche, Antoine, to some, uh, <laughs> comes by and they discuss his artwork and so forth and so on. And then in the next chapter, we get 
you know, the scene at the the mansion at Brideshead where Bridey reveals that he's going to get married and then uh, Julia has her attack of conscience. <clears throat> um, but one thing I wanted to talk about first, I wanted to just note and see what you all think about this. I noticed that Celia, that when referring to Celia, Charles never refers to her by name. He always refers to her as my wife. Why do you think that is? Wait, except for one time when he compares Celia to Rex. Oh, dear. Because I'm looking at that line right now. What is that line? I wonder which he's talking to Antoine. I wonder which is the more horrible, I said. Celia's art and fashion are Rex's politics and money. Well, Mm. okay, so let me, I guess I should rephrase what I was, what I was noting. Uh, In dialogue, he does, like when talking to other people, he does refer to her as Celia. But as the narrator, he's always referred to her as Uh, my wife. So for example, the first line of chapter two, it was my wife's idea to hold the private view on Friday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. And there's something disorienting almost about it. Like, I mean, obviously there's a, it's creating a distance between them. It's not very personal, but what, what else is, I mean, is, is that all there is or what's going on there? Why does he do that? It sure focuses on her role, right? Over her personhood. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on two 67 in my edition, they're having a conversation and he even refers to her there in the course of, you know, kind of narrating dialogue. He says, when they had gone, my wife said. Huh. Mm-hmm. And then towards the, after that, he says, there were a dozen at luncheon. And though it pleased my hostess and my wife to say that they were there in my honor and so on. I mean, again and again and again, it's to the it's he does it so much that it's almost drawing attention to itself. Yes, right. Boy, Angelina, I want to hear you say more about that i i tend to agree with you it's he's drawing he's highlighting her role but diminishing her personhood it seems what is happening yes i just thought the details can you unpack that please (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if i can i feel like andrew has taught me just to say crazy things and let everybody else argue about (laughs) no but isn't that um, just called being a teacher yeah, probably. One of the things that I thought was was telling about the beginning of this chapter is just all the details to her direction of his career. Again, the business aspect, right? Like he starts the chapter with, um, you know, the details about why she chose Friday, right? Because that was going to get them better reviews. You had to put them in the right mood. Am I still on the air? Yeah, Everybody yeah, still yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so, I mean, that's her role in all of this. But, I mean, there are more, there's more than one way to interpret the my wife thing. I think that what's happening is is that he's sort of depersonalizing her and focusing on her role. Now, of course, another way you could why, read though? it but is... Why, why? I mean, if the narrator is doing that, is it to, to show... Is it to make her look worse in some way? Or is it to make Charles look worse? Or, you know, if you're... As far as why making that decision... I don't know that it necessarily makes either one of them worse. I thought it just highlighted the reality of their relationship. The lack of intimacy. Yeah. You know what just came to my mind? I, I just thought, I never thought about this before. There's two, there's a, there's a very positive and a very negative thing Charles could be doing. Because one of the things the narrator Charles is doing in this story is he's not trying to make himself look good. Right. We talked and about that last week. Yeah. One, 
Yeah, and one effect of him saying my wife is to is to distance himself from her. Just like with the kids. Why did you call it Caron? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Right. And, and so he's distancing himself from that whole family. He looks like a cad doing so. Um, but the other thing is, what if he's also looking back on it and saying, you know, she was my wife. And I was wondering that, to too. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get to when I said there's more than one way, because it could be highlighting the fact that he's in an adulterous relationship by constantly calling her my wife, my wife, my wife. Yeah. I think I mean, he's doing both. He might be doing both. I think about just in life, and again, I'm going to say one of these things that probably says too much about me, but I... I'm just going to say this. I am so put off when people refer to their husband as my husband instead of his name. Mm. I'm so sensitive to that and very put off by it. Um, Do you know why, Angelina? I don't see why. My wife does that sometimes. (laughs) Well, I mean, sometimes you don't want people to actually know who you're married to. In a conversation with me, I don't think I've ever heard Karen be like, my husband will be home soon. No, it's Andrew will be home soon. (laughs) What does Andrew want for dinner? I was probably lying anyway. (laughs) But I think part of it is being sensitive to the sort of female um, cattiness that can come where, 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 you know, it's a possessive thing. This is my husband. You know, like it's it's an ownership thing. It's a a claim to a right. It's a a way of... uh, drawing a line in the sand to the other women in the room that this one's mine. Mm. There's, there's a lot of things going on, on under the surface. Uh, so it's just something that I personally find very off-putting. I'm not going to go too deep into this because I don't want to offend all of our listeners who maybe do that. But um, who, Whose husbands or wives don't actually have names. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people <laughs> on Facebook call their husband my husband, and I just scratch my head and I'm like, does he not have a name? <laughs> insisted that adults be called their names to my children my children never grew up thinking my name was mom that was something i was very particular about my husband was never going to call me mom as my name huh. it's also uh-huh. something that bothers me a great deal sounds like a hang up to me <laughs> <laughs> probably is i have it's, many it's charming of I, so yeah, very charming. I, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea that Charles is not making himself look good. And we talked about it a little bit last week and dad, you just mentioned it again. Um, do, do you think so? So as, as the narrator, as you know, Charles, the narrator looking back on his life, um, do you think that he's, do, do you think that he does that in a way that succeeds at doing what he's trying to do while also maintaining a sense of sympathy for our protagonist or what does that affect or what is that, you know, that method of storytelling, what effect does that have on us as the reader and our ability to, and who we sympathize and how we feel about the story and the characters? I mean, do you think it's successful? At well, based, a, on, based on what Angelina was just saying, it, it really depends on our hangups as readers. Go, go on. Joking. Go on. <laughs> no, say more about that. <laughs> to broaden it. Okay, okay, okay. Let me tie it in with something uh, Blanche said that, that I thought was worth was worth um, reflecting on. Remember when, when um, they're in the what they call the pansy bar? Mm-hmm. And they're, they're in the uh, – they've just got there, and, and Blanche says, not quite your milieu, my dear, but mine. And then he says, we will take our drinks and sit in a corner. You must remember, my dear, that here 
you are just as conspicuous and may I say abnormal, my dear, as I should be in brats. So the line that struck me there was, you must remember. He's, he's supposed to remember something that's right in front of him. And who he is alters his experience of the observation. Okay, it's perspective again. At, we as readers, when we read the phrase, my wife, we read it as the person that we are. So one person can take it as neutered. One person can take it as warm. Another person can take it as distancing. Another person could take it as highlighting the adultery. It's all there. It's all contained in the word. But we're going to read it and absorb it as the person that we are because it depends on our milieu. It depends on our milieu. It depends on who we are. And I think that's so crucial to everything um, was, if not writers, trying to get across in the story. You read that is true. as yourself when you read. It's interesting, though, that Julia doesn't call Rex my husband. He's always just Rex. Hmm. She doesn't like that role, but that is really interesting. You're right. So what does no, that say yeah. about Julia? I feel like Julia know. doesn't think that she has a relationship with Rex. Yeah, she's not even holding out the pretense. I mean, at yeah. that last chapter when she turns to Rex, and Rex is like, are you leaving? She says, yes, Charles and I are going out into the moonlight. I mean, that's yeah. pretty. That's yeah. pretty. I, actually, at that moment, I thought if this was Anna Karenina, this would be the moment when Rex pulls her aside and says, you can carry on how you like in private, but not in front of my friends. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, and that's the difference between Rex is the modern man and, and that other guy. What's his name again? Anna's husband as, as uh, Alexei? Ron, no, Alexei as a nobleman. But look, look at along that line. Charles says to Julia, "What about Rex?" And here's Julia. You remember Julia's response? Rex isn't anybody at all," said Julia. Yeah. he just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Which of mm-hmm. course is hearkening back to the previous chapter. That's all about you know the the, the dinner chapter where Charles and and Rex have dinner. But Celia does exist. Huh. But I, I agree. Huh. Well, one I, thing- I think those two possible explanations that you gave, Angelina, um, it's either he kind of sees the um, her as kind of being confined to this certain role. I think I lean toward that explanation. I think that she is very useful to him in the role that she plays and he fully acknowledges that. And he also fully acknowledges that there's no, there's no love left in the relationship anymore. It's just a relationship of kind of, well, especially uh, once they talk about it, right. It's all out in the open to him. She knows and you know, and she, and they have an arrangement and Charles is not as troubled by the terms of this arrangement as Julia is, right? Julia wants to get divorced and get married and have children and have some stability before the world destroys itself. And Charles is like, what's Mm. the hurry? This is all like, honestly, he doesn't have any motivation to change things. He's never at home. He can do whatever he wants. Celia is taking care of the children, his career, everything. I was thinking about how interesting it is that, that Julia has the insight into the world around her to see what's coming. Mm Mm-hmm. Like she's oh, got she has that great pressions. line where she says she feels squished between the past and the future. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's so true of that whole. That's generation. kind of the whole. The, yeah, and and that's that's really good because you just you just brought together two things there. 
the the remember the description of his wife being hygienic oh that was what you were looking that was what we were trying to yeah, remember that's missing that's in, in one book, book but not in another yeah yeah even even their sexual life is hygienic right mm. and so 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 she is a useful person but the thing about it is either charles is presenting herself as one who just is that way or she actually views life that way because when we start chapter two it was my wife's idea to hold the private view on friday next line she says we are out to catch the critics this time she's a schemer she's and she describes the whole strategy on the ship she's always strategizing to get charles to make him a made man andrew do you think that that that's her nature or do you think that she has it's at least partly just her nature her temperament the way that she views the world but is it also that the failure of their relationship has sort of like um demanded that that aspect of her increase well the fact that i mean I know perhaps you, but go ahead david well he didn't ask me but i was just gonna say the fact hmm. that she you know she was she had an affair she was unfaithful to him earlier. She suggests that she was at least somewhat okay with a scheme or two. <laughs> yes. Like and the fact that she asks her. him to get married, I think highlights yep. who she is. Yep. It, it also might highlight the homoerotic side of Charles as a character. That's yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 um, well, his lack of activity what I was is say also what David said. Yes. He's a very passive character, isn't he? The, the, um, thing I was going to say is that from what I can tell, their marriage was from the beginning sort of a utilitarian marriage mm-hmm. in which they were going to team up and achieve something, which is in a way that's just sort of an aristocratic value. You, you know, a well, marriage it's what, it's what between Julia was countries, looking for. between states. Like she exactly. Was, Julia was explicit about that. what they were both that. looking for. Rex was looking for that, too. Both but, of them were disappointed. That's why they got, she got married when she was 19 that's or whatever. That's why. Did you did we read yet where 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 um, Bridie makes his announcement? No, that's in chapter three. Yeah, we'll okay, talk so about we'll that talk about it today. Well, yeah. Yes. Yes. So let me just say this much about it: that the barrels that Bridie's comment about Beryl as the as a Catholic with the with Catholic values fortified by the prejudices of the middle class. Mm. Yeah, that that's was something. that's really that uh, that's really fitting here, right? Because the middle class. Mm-hmm. Is the class that most values a stable marriage and and a, and an intimate marriage. Yeah. The, the, the aristocracy, you get married and then you have a mistress, and the poor, they just try to survive. But the middle class recognizes that their class status, they're, they they intuitively grasp that they're going to be middle class as long as they stay married, as a class, as a family, as long as they stay married, and as long as they raise children. To have stable relationships, but but if you lose that, all is lost, and that's what American history since 1960s has, has really demonstrated. Okay, so one thought as we as we wrestle with this idea of the my wife, what if it's both? What if the point is that Charles is trying to say, look, she's just this role to me, but the fact that Bridie's going to point out, okay, look, this is adultery, right? I know we haven't been calling it mm-hmm. that, but it is. She is your wife. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that Julia is saying, but I want to be the wife, it all highlights that it's not just an artificial, pragmatic role. There is something real there. Julia wants the real thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's beautifully said. 
Everybody it. does, right? We, 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 fall for the, we fall for the surface short-term tricks, but everybody wants the reality. Mm. But it's hard. I think about this, since we're talking about marriage, I, I think about this in relation to uh, monasticism. When you, when you become a monk, you take three vows. You take a vow of chastity, poverty, and obedience. And I, I've been realizing lately that that's, those are, you don't avoid those three vows when you get married. That's right. You're taking the same three vows. When you get married, you say, nothing I own is mine. That's poverty. A Christian marriage is a Christian marriage. You make a vow of poverty. Nothing I own is mine. The second thing is chastity. I'm not going to do this with anybody but you. And the third thing is, what was the third? Obedience. Both partners in a Christian marriage are submitting to the other. And that's the path of salvation in a marriage just as much as it's the path of salvation in a monastery. Absolutely. That's a point I make with my students a lot, that the medieval concept is chastity, not virginity. And in in the modern era, we talk about virginity, and we act as if that's a special category that only single—single people are called to virginity— Married people are not. But the medieval idea was much more holistic, chastity, and everyone is called to chastity. Single, married, right. monk, whatever. Every this is what the Christian is called to. It's not a special category. And it's not and it's not just a self denial either. It's a self denial for something. In marriage, it's yeah. a self denial immediately for the sake of the marriage. I mean, I've been married for thirty three years now, and there's nothing in the world that I would take instead of the world that my wife has been able to build for me to live in, or we've been able to build. I mean, let me say that way so I don't disappear completely. But, you know, we, we've been able to build this world, but man, it was hard and still is. I forgot what I was going to say. Maybe you just said anyway. it. Yeah. Well, you were saying it's not just self-denial. It's self-denial oh, it's for, yeah. for a purpose. There we go. It's for something, right? And 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 yeah, there were. There's a lot of things that took a long time for me to realize. But when I look at my grandchildren, okay, I don't. I don't just. I, I see two infinite, immortal, beautiful, three, four now coming, beautiful, infinite, immortal souls, right? And there's nothing better than that. But I also see how to put it. Something that could not have happened if it weren't for the comedy of my marriage. Because comedy is all about creating new worlds, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, but even that isn't the ultimate thing. That isn't the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is union with God. And so you, 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 don't, you don't sacrifice things for your wife or for your husband in a marriage. You sacrifice things to your husband and your wife, but you always do it for God. Like the child, he's supposed to obey his parents in the Lord, and and we're we're offering ourselves as a sacrifice. And there's nothing of that whatsoever in Charles' mind. He can't. He, that 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 couldn't even in his pagan state. That couldn't even come close to his mind, as as Celia put it. His first. What does it say? She, I, I forget if it was a. Um, bowel shriveling moment, but she says, "Yes, that was she such says, a good uh, Charles lives. Charles lives for nothing but oh, beauty. But beauty, right? Lives for nothing for beauty. but beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the exact word she used? Wait, I want to it. She's Charles lives it for to... one thing: beauty. 
page 267. Got it. Charles lives for one thing, beauty. Okay. In other words, Charles is an idol. And look at what it's, it's an idolater. And look what it's doing. His world is falling apart, and he doesn't even know it. Because beauty itself, as an aesthetic value, has become God to him. You're well, right. And right. so he's captivated by the beauty of this relationship with Julia that he perceives, right? And it's not enough for her. Mm, she, well, she says, I want real peace. And he says, isn't this peace? And she wants a real marriage, which, again, I don't remember how this book ends, but I'm guessing this is the beginning of the end for them, is that she wants to get married. Well, you know, right do after remember, that. Do you remember how the scene out by the fountain where, where I don't know, it's not the one by the fountain. Anyway. Where he she hits him with the switch. Yes. It is by the fountain. Oh, that's an awesome scene. And why does she do that? Do you remember? It's because he'd rather hide behind a camera and take a picture of their relationship. That's than right. Be in it. She said, this is not a painting. Because this is he, not a play. Yeah, he's always it's removed. Not a play, he's always right? one level removed. She Julia wants right. the and, real. And she wants the real. Right. Right. And I think that's 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 going to impact Charles profoundly. The switch on the face, two red marks on his face, two scarlet stripes on his face. But but watch watch what this does in Charles. What does this make him realize? Right? If I, I've been living for beauty, for nothing but beauty, for nothing but beauty, and I haven't been able to see that that Cordelia's love is legitimate, even though. All it's doing is giving Celia? dying people medicine. Oh, later, later. You're talking about later yeah. on. Did I jump ahead? Sorry. But yeah, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. there's this, there's this, the, the monk in, in, who's taking care of Sebastian, who sees him as a good Samaritan and so on. And, and he thinks, oh, poor booby. He doesn't have the capacity to perceive genuine true love because he's a worshiper of beauty for its own pagan sake and 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 something happens to him when and remember how beautiful julia is something happened oh i got one more thought here remember how beautiful think of how beautiful their relationship is it's a fantasy don't you think that there's this he, he keeps saying our minds go we're like on a mind belt it's so unrealistic it's so charming and so Oh, romantic. it's just vacations, right? And stolen moments here or there. Well, if you go uh-huh. if you go to that passage on 267 where she says you see Charles lives for one thing, beauty. He she uh, Celia then says, I think he got bored with finding it ready-made yeah. in England. He had to go and create it for himself. He wanted new worlds to conquer. Um and then, it, interestingly, mirroring this idea of Julia wanting the real, it then, at the end of her phrase there, it says, a photographer brought us apart, or brought us together, flashed a lamp on our faces, and let us part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that, mm-hmm. that little aside there mirrors what you're talking about with Julia wanting the real, and, you know, Celia and Charles come together, they take the picture, and then they part, and the... And the it's a postcard moment, part. and so is Charles's relationship with Julia, but he can't see that, right? It's vacation right. postcards. We've been here and here. And that's what Andrew's saying is so interesting to me because I think that highlights then why he brings Julia the painting of the awakened conscience because he literally doesn't have any framework or category for, for what is happening to her, just a painting. 
this is the only way he can relate to this must be what you're feeling this pain. And she laughs and says, yes, that's exactly what I felt. That's what's funny. Yeah. I mean, that's right. part I mean, of it. It's so, yeah, so it was correct and insightful, but it's just apart from his own experience. He's not mm -hmm. like, no, I know what you're going uh -huh. through. All human beings have this. No, he gives her, gives her an art book. <laughs> it's correct, but it's irrelevant. Right, and then he tries to say, psychologists can explain this away, darling. Exactly. Your bad upbringing. And she then reacts a couple pages later where Which, she says, I don't care about and this whole list of things. Didn't, isn't earlier in the book, aren't, the psychologist thing is really interesting because Sebastian earlier on, people were trying to explain his mm -hmm. issues that yeah. way, right? And, and yep. Yep. So who is it? Bridie keeps saying it's, that's not what it is. Is, it's, is that what it was? Or is Charles trying to say? I can't remember. You know, it's been a while now, but. I think Bridie was saying, if that's all it was, was a psychological issue, I would know what to do with it. But that's not what it is. Right. Isn't it something like that? Yeah. It's alcoholism. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so, yeah. Kind of. What, well, I think what, what, what Bridie is getting at though, is that if, if it's, if it's if it's just alcoholism, if it's just a chemical thing, then we can bear it with them. But if it's rebellion, again, if it's rejection of yeah, the family, yeah. then what can right. we do? Right, right. Well, but what's so, the so we find out that Sebastian has gone up. back to the church. What did you say? Wait, what? What's the word that sets well, everything okay, off? I, I keep, yeah, I, I keep coming back to to the to the discussion you guys had last week that I missed out on and wish I could have been in on. But the opening line, remember, my theme is memory, mm -hmm. and you talked about it. I I was hoping, I mean, I wish we could do this one book for twenty years, but <laughs> I really appreciated you talking about the afflatus and or afflatus or whatever it was. But I looked it up. I, it's I was afflatus. hoping you'd get more into how on earth, how on earth is memory like a flock of pigeons in St. Mark's Square. <laughs> but anyway, my, my theme is memory. So everything is about who has to remember what, right? And so, so when we're looking at, when we're looking at um, Charles and Julia, Julia's got all these memories that Charles doesn't have access to from her, from her upbringing and so on. And so she's able to judge things in a way that Charles simply can't judge things. And one of the things she has in her memory is a word that Charles doesn't take uh, seriously. Yes. So when everything changes, he is complete. Well, as he puts it, he was at sea. He's completely incapable of being any value to her, not because he's like he thinks outgrown it, but because it's not even part of him. So what's the word? Sin. Yeah. I mean, unless Propaganda. we're thinking of something else. Maybe it's no, of, yeah. which, She goes on for page two. She does. That was, just, that was fascinating. In such a break. And she makes the, the connection between her mom and Jesus again. We've, so we've seen that again. Oh. oh. She, goes right through, she goes right through the Paschal weekend. Talks about the candle. Talks about, and, and she can only see Christ crucified. There's no mm -hmm. consolation, but but more than that, Christ is just hanging on the cross all the time because of her sin, because she's trapped in the sin, and Christ can never can never be buried in the tomb where he can rest. Right? He's always hanging on the cross because she won't let go of her sin. 
Turn to 286. And it's not doing something wrong. 286? Yeah, read, Let's read the passage. So let's start with 286 I do there. think it's yeah. interesting that we started the show by laughing about prepositions, and here we are, in sin, with sin, by sin, for sin. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I take that as cool. <laughs> so we just set that up. We didn't even know. Providential. Why don't we just take turns reading... Um, since I'm talking right now, I'll start, and then I'll stop, and then Angelina, you go, and then after a bit, Tim can go, and then after a bit, Dad can go, and we'll read this. Like, I want to read a good two pages here. So, yeah. anybody who doesn't like that when we do that, you can skip ahead on your little 15 seconds ahead. Skip ahead like four times, five times maybe. Um, and David, the thing, just please, I've got a please read with what. The yeah. question that I have about this is: is this? Is this all about the affair or is this a broader statement of how Julia feels that her whole life has been? Oh, I thought it was the broad, don't you? Like at first you think she's talking about this sin, but then she jumps to her whole life. Well, let's read it That's and find out. That's how I out. took it all. So, yeah, we can read it. Okay, so I'll start with... And can you read with lots of white space? Don't, don't, don't hurry like people don't want to hear it. Read it like you care about it. I don't say that because you normally don't. I just say that because I always have to say that when people read. Okay, so let's see. Starting with, she was not in the library. She was not in the library. I mounted to her room, but she wasn't there. I paused by her laden dressing table, wondering if she would come. Then through the open window, as the light streamed out across the terrace into the dusk, to the fountain, which in that house seemed always to draw us to itself for comfort and refreshment, I caught the glimpse of a white skirt against the stones. It was nearly night. I found her in the darkest refuge, on a wooden seat, in a bay of the clipped box which encircled the basin. I took her in my arms, and she pressed her face to my heart. Aren't you cold out here? She did not answer, only clung closer to me and shook with sobs. My darling, what is it? Why do you mind? Why does it matter what that old booby says? I don't. It doesn't. It's just the shock. Don't laugh at me. In the two years of our love, which seemed a lifetime, I had not seen her so moved or felt so powerless to help. How dare he speak to you like that, I said. The cold-blooded old humbug. But I was failing her in sympathy. Uh, Angelina, go ahead and pick it up there. No, she said. It's not that. He's quite right. They know all about it, Bridie and his widow. They've got it in black and white. They bought it for a penny at the church door. You can get anything there for a penny in black and white, and nobody to see that you pay. Only an old woman with a broom at the other end, rattling round the confessionals, and a young woman lighting a candle at the seven Dolores. Put a penny in the box or not, just as you like. Take your tract. There you've got it, in black and white. All in one word, too. One little flat, deadly word that covers a lifetime. Living in sin. Not just doing wrong, as I did when I went to America. Doing wrong. Knowing it is wrong. Stopping doing it. Forgetting. That's not what they mean. That's not Bridie's penny worth. He means just what it says in black and white. Living in sin. With sin, by sin, for sin, every hour, every day, year in, year out. Waking up with sin in the morning, seeing the curtains drawn on sin, bathing it, dressing it, clipping diamonds to it, feeding it, showing it round, giving it a good time, putting it to sleep at night with a tablet of dial if it's fretful, 
always the same, like an idiot child carefully nursed, guarded from the world. Poor Julia, they say. She can't go out. She's got to take care of her little sin. A pity it ever lived, they say. But it's so strong. Children like that always are. Julia's so good to her little mad sin. All right, Tim, you want to take it? An hour ago, I thought, under the sunset, she sat turning her ring in the water and counting the days of happiness. Now, under the first stars in the last gray whisper of day, all this mysterious tumult of sorrow... What had happened to us in the painted parlor? What shadow had fallen in the candlelight? Two rough sentences and a trite phrase. She was beside herself. In her voice, now muffled in my breast, now clear and anguished, came to me in single words and broken sentences, which may be strung together thus. Past and future, the years when I was trying to be a good wife, in the cigar smoke while time crept on, and the counters clicked on the backgammon board, and the man who was dummy at the men's table filled the glasses. When I was trying to bear his child, torn into pieces by something already dead, putting him away, forgetting him, finding him, in the, fast to, in the past two years with you, all the No, future, no, no, forgetting him. Um, forgetting him, finding you, the past two years with you, all the future with you, all the future with or without you, war coming, world ending, sin. A word from so long ago, from Nanny Hawkins stitching by the hearth and the nightlight burning before the sacred heart, Cordelia and me with the catechism in mummy's room before luncheon on Sundays, mummy carrying my sin with her to a church, bowed under it in the black lace veil in the chapel slipping out with it in London before the fires were lit, taking it with her through the empty streets where the milkman's ponies stood with their forefeet on the pavement, mummy dying with my sin eating at her more cruelly than her own deadly illness. Andrew? No, no, Mummy dying with it, Christ dying with it, nailed hand and foot, hanging over the bed in the night nursery, hanging year after year in the dark little study at Farm Street with a shining oilcloth, hanging in the dark church where only the old charwoman raises the dust and one candle burns, hanging at noon, high among the crowds and the soldiers, no comfort except the sponge of vinegar and the kind words of a thief, hanging forever, never the cool sepulcher, and the grave clothes spread on the stone slab, never the oil and spices in the dark cave, always the midday sun and the dice clicking for its seamless coat. Never the shelter of the cave or the high castle walls, outcast in the desolate spaces where the hyenas roam at night and the rubbish heaps smoke in the daylight. No way back, the gates barred. All the saints and angels posted along the walls, nothing but bare stone and dust in the smoldering dumps, thrown away, scrapped, rotting down, the old man with lupus and the forked stick who limps out at nightfall to turn the rubbish, hoping for something to put in his sack, something marketable, turns away with disgust, nameless and dead, like the baby they wrapped up and took away before I had seen her.
stuff in tents. Mm. One of the things that I I think is interesting about the the um, and Angelina, you were kind of talking about this that Charles referring to Celia as my wife is that in a sense this is the the, the narrator many years later, but he's in doing so he highlights his own sin and connects it to to her having her moment of conscience here, and it kind of foreshadows in a way um, the whole idea of conscience or guilt or or whatever word you want to use um and it feels like what, what we're going to get self-awareness yeah self-awareness yeah um yeah i guess the truly self-aware person has, has some modicum of guilt right um at, at least that's how it starts and so it feels like we're going to have you know we're building to that and what role is her guilt going to play in his seems like a big question the rest of the way. Um, at least in his, you know, awakening of a different kind, his, his own awakening to use the word that, um, that was used that he ends up using. It's interesting that, you know, as we're talking about this, Waugh is, I think, using a much older and sacramental understanding of marriage than a modern would because, Julie and Rex have a modern marriage, right? It's an arrangement. Celia and and Charles have a modern uh, arrangement, right? And everybody knows there's no lying. There's no dishonesty. There's no betrayal. Everybody knows what's going on and everybody's okay with it. That's very modern. Like, it's not hurting anyone. Who are we to judge? But the fact that they're having this awakening guilty conscience over something, like, why? What is it about the arrangement that's not okay? Why do they feel guilty? Like, there's some interesting questions being raised here. Like maybe marriage what, is what, something yeah. bigger than our arrangement. Let me let me try something here. Let me suggest something. The problem with Rex, Julius said, is that he's not whole. He's he's you know organs undeveloped or you know not a complete man. At one point, Charles says that out of himself. Do you remember that? Was I think maybe it was in last week's reading, but Charles says. He refers to himself in exactly the same wording, same phrasing that that had applied to Rex. And so what what is Charles missing? What has he come to realize is missing in him? And what if it's this? What if it's that when Julia was a little girl sitting at Nanny Hawkins' feet, learning catechism and learning the law of God and so on, that a, that a, that a capacity of her soul was being cultivated and nourished and, and, and call it trained so that she would unavoidably always have some capacity to feel that kind of guilt. Whereas Charles never had that capacity developed as a child, never was taught things that was never nourished. And so his conscience had to, had to witness it in somebody else. It was, it was there. But it was completely uncultivated. Thus, he was all hung up on art, somewhat like Blanche. But when he sees a person actually respond to the concept of sin in a manner that indicates there's something to it, it's a revelation to him. And it brings to life a faculty in his soul that really still needs badly to be trained and nourished. But it, but it's it, it, it 
just like Sebastian brought Charles to life aesthetically, now Julia is bringing Charles to life, at least morally, maybe even spiritually. In other words, what we're doing to our children by not teaching them catechism, law of God, the wisdom of the scriptures, is we're, 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 making, we're, we're robbing them of what makes it possible for them to become healthy, normal beings, more moral beings and spiritual beings, which by nature they are. Right. We're 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 um, we're distorting them in, in the way we raise children. And Charles is an ex- exhibit, a high pagan, beautiful exhibit of this distortion. And he seems to recognize that he's distorted. He's he's not all there. But this is bringing him to life. I think that's exactly right, Andrew. I think that's exactly it. And that's what's happening in this chapter. You said you you just used the phrase bring bringing them to life or something like that, right? That's how you concluded your phrase just now. Yeah, in other words, to have a hyperactive conscience or a, a very active conscience, a very good thing. It means that it's alive. Right? It might not always be right. It might not be good at interpreting, but at least it's active. Um, what, I think Wa put just put something in. He puts another little aside in here, which has a lot of meaning and is and speaks to that. On two, uh, 289, after she speaks, um, she goes inside and it says, I followed her into the house, into her room. She sat at her looking glass. Considering that I've just recovered from a fit of hysteria, she said, I don't call that at all bad. And then this, her eyes seemed unnaturally large and bright. Her cheeks pale mm. with two spots of high color, whereas a girl, she used to put a dab of rouge. Most hysterical women looked as if they've had a bad cold. This is her talking about, you'd better change your shirt before going down. It's all tears and lipstick. And then they go down. But that line, her eyes seemed unnaturally large and bright, and her cheeks pale with two spots of high color, whereas a girl, she used to put a dab of rouge, kind of speaks to that idea. It's like her eyes are large and bright, and she's, at least off that offers she the metaphor sees. of seeing clearly. Mm-hmm. And then the idea mm-hmm. of like there being more color in her face, that the kind of color that she would have had to artificially create when she was younger. Exactly. Yeah. Speak so hard. Her, her desire real. for the real. Yeah. And the and the um, glorious phrase that I'd never noticed before: unnaturally large. Okay. So mm-hmm. because she suppressed it for all this time, now that it's come to life, it's had an unnatural largeness to it. It's been it's been excessive. Like when you, we realize we're doing something wrong and repent for the first time, we just torn up by it, right? And 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 when we when we are daily doing our confession, then it doesn't get unnaturally, unnaturally large. It's just part of, it's proportionate, if I can put it that way, when it comes to repentance. Um, the, the repression or suppression of her conscience of, for all these years, now that it exerts itself, it's unnatural in its magnitude. Hmm. What she needs to do is attain the right proportion and balance, but that's going to take time. It's it's excessive in a good sense. One of the things that I'm that I was curious about when I was reading this again last night is exactly why the moment was so eye opening for her, so meaningful. Mm. You mean why Bridie's saying? Yeah, I mean obviously it's the, maybe it's just that it's the first time that someone's actually said it out loud. Um, but a lot of people would just kind of do what Charles did and be like, "Who cares what you think?" Um, and it seems like. Bridie gets that responded to, to he, a lot of people respond to him that way. 
Um, but why why does this particular moment impact her the way it does? And what do you think, Tim? Oh man, Tim, you 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 haven't made any wild assertions in a while on this episode. Maybe you should <laughs> jump in here and and you know say something. This is such a good question, Tim. I want to hear what you say. I I read it as it could have been. I think that this the water has been building up behind the dam and getting higher and higher and higher for Julia, especially during the last two years when she's been with Charles. And I almost think the smallest stone would have broken the dam. It just happened to be this statement by Bridie um, because it was directed at her. But I think it could have been any number of other things that broke the dam because it comes out in such a torrent. I mean, it's almost, it's very lyrical, but it's almost stream of consciousness. She, it's, she's like, it's, it's like she's trying to purge herself as if it was, that was possible. So I, I think it's almost a, co- not a coincidence. What's the right word? It could have been any variety of different things um, could have happened to break the dam that was holding back these fathoms of water inside Julia. Angelina. I actually, I tend to agree with that. I mean, right now I'm thinking about the way Bridie says it. It's very interesting. He doesn't give himself this sanctimonious judgmental air, right? He doesn't say, I can't set foot in a house where there's adultery being committed, right? No, Bridie's like, hey, man, Rex knows, Rex knows what's going on. If he's okay with it, who am I to judge? Sure, I can come here. But guys, she won't come. There's no way she's going to, I mean, you all understand, she's not going to come here, right? But it's not said, it's not said in this judgmental way, which I think right. could have provoked Julia to attack him. Like, it wasn't a, it's not a fight between Bridie and Julia. It's just, well, like she said, it's just he's just stating it black and white. And so I also think it's interesting that after her meltdown, she's like, well, of course we have to go home and go downstairs now and talk to Bridie. And, and Charles is very perplexed by this. But I think there's two things going on. One, this is how women are. We can have a total meltdown and then turn around and deal with whatever has to be dealt with pragmatically. No, we have to go make arrangements about the house. So I'm going to pull it together and go downstairs. There's that. But metaphorically... She's accepting Bridie's judgment of the whole thing, right? Because she's going to go down there and make things smooth for this marriage, this marriage that disapproves of her. Mm. I also took it to be a way of her avoiding getting into bed with Charles. Going downstairs? Maybe I overread that. Yeah. Because it seemed like, I mean, aren't they, aren't, isn't it kind of a little bit deep into the evening? Well, yeah, but then he goes and puts her to sleep and she's falling asleep, right? Is that the same? Is that... Did I get that well, the wrong that's, time? That's kind of beyond the question that I was originally asking. Like, oh. just, you know, as far as why, why does what Bridie says impact her so much? Like that, you know, we're kind of beyond that conversation. We can talk about that in a minute, but I want to stick to this question. Yeah. About, Didn't Charles say this must have been bothering you for a long time? Doesn't he say something like mm-hmm. that? He did. Yeah. So that supports Tim's idea. And she says only occasionally. Not that's very right. Often. I didn't think of it very often. You know, after it's interesting that the way, you know, when when Bridie, it comes up because Bridie talks about getting married, and he and then uh, Julia says, "Bring her around. I'm dying to meet her." And he says, "Oh, no, I can't do that." And she says, "She gets confused." And he says, "She says, Bridesa- Brideshead says she has the children." Said Bridesaid. Besides, mm-hmm. you 
are peculiar, aren't you? And then he says, what can that, you know, then he explains, she says, what can that mean? And he, she explains it. And then that line about the middle class. And then at the end, Julia's only response is the only thing she says to him is why you pompous ass. She said, stopped and turned towards the door. And then Charles thinks she's laughing, but mm-hmm. she's actually crying. And then she leaves. And then Charles says, what did you have to say that for? Basically, what a bloody offensive thing to say to Julia. And then Brideshead simply says, and this is how the section ends. There was nothing she should object to. I was merely stating a fact well known to her. Mm. And so Brideshead certainly has a uh, insight into her. And maybe he was biding his time. I don't know. But I think it's telling that it all begins when that uh, Beryl won't bring her children or she won't come around with her children. She has the children, said Brideshead. She can't come around because she has the children to think of. And of Mm. course, Julia doesn't have the children to think of. Um, that you know, the, I was struck by Tim's metaphor of the water building up behind the dam, and I I think that's well said. What what I've been reflecting on while you guys are talking is what are all the conditions or circumstances that led to this bursting of the dam, and I agree with the first part of what Tim said that this was really building up. I don't know if I agree. I have to think about whether I agree with the second part that, that anything could, could have bursted. If I, I don't want to overstate it. So, but you, you use the term like it was a coincidence. It just happened to be that. Mm. And the reason I say that is because it really is a conscience thing. And it, 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 it is, and her focus in the response is entirely beginning to end on the notion of what it means to live in sin. Cause that's the phrase he used. He doesn't just say you sinned or you did something wrong. But he said, you and Rex have been living in sin and now you and Charles are living in sin. And so to your question much earlier, is it just this particular thing or is it her whole life? I think it's her whole life. And what she's realized is that she, she is a person in sin and with sin and by sin and for sin. And, and that's, that's why it becomes so, Lyrical, although you, I also like the way you talk about his flow of thought because he does say, I had to assemble this, right? She, she yeah, came out that's sometimes right. muffled. So, so this is, you know, it's really hard to do dramatically because it wasn't done this way. It didn't happen this way. It took a long Charles time. Charles assembled it for parts us. And, he redacted yes, it for us. Exactly. It, yeah, nicely said. Redacted it. And so... But 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 the but the whole thing, the whole cry is, this is my life in sin. I realize this. I I can't deny this, and part of it is because of the consequences. To to, I mean, her she does love her family, and so part of it is consequences socially. To, to, in other words, relationship with Bridie and his wife. Part of it is part of it is. Um, Nanny Hawkins and all the memories, right? Again, my theme is memory. This is this is stuff that she's remembering. And because of all the things that have built up, again, the dam, what's building up against the dam wall is memories. And all those memories are the condition of this response. She has to be honest about her memories. And she also has to have this faculty somewhat ready to act. 
And so I, I do think that, and I mean by this faculty, what we're calling conscience, although it's yeah. obviously an inadequate word, but without both of those things, and both of those things could be whole doctoral theses, one on conscience and one on all the conditions, memories, without both of those things coming together, plus the sense of what the future holds, it wouldn't have happened, but the word sin, the, the phrase living in sin, was was the necessary condition, I think, for the explosion, because that's precisely what she's repent not repenting of. That's precisely what, for a moment, she acknowledges. I'm living in sin. Andrew, I think you're and right. And it's existential, right? It's I think you're right. Sorry? I think it's if I could if I could redact what I said earlier. I do, I think you're right. It was a specific sort of um remark that she responded to. It wasn't just I I don't think I was right to say it could have been anything. Um I do think that the the pressure behind the damn wall was so heavy it was just ready to burst, but it it seemed like the remark, because it came from Bridie, because it was about sin, it took place within the Marchmaid household with all of the memories and shadows of the family kind of looming over her. It wasn't just as arbitrary as, um, yeah, a cabbie could have cursed her as he drove by and that broke it. it it's not as arbitrary as that. Yeah, a cabbie drives by, yells out. Lady Julia, you're living in sin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I need you to help me out here. Because, you know, when he says the psychologist could explain it or whatever, you, you must have been oh, thinking about it. I thought you were about that. to tell us you got a, a text message. That's what I thought was happening, too. Oh, no, everyone is way too busy for that right now. Oh, really? Uh, so, um, okay, so... You know, he said, he mentions the poet, the, the the painting. Have you have you guys looked at that Holman Hunt painting, by the way? I did. I I looked at it. Yeah. Uh, just before we started. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it is. She does have the the, the character the, the the female in the picture. The woman in the picture has very wide eyes. Interestingly, but mm -hmm. he says, "Well, it's a thing." Psycho you must be huh. thinking about it. And she says, "Well, hardly at all." More lately, with the last Trump so near. And then he mentions the thing about the psychologist. Yeah. But what is the reference to the last Trump? I that's, that's one that World War went over my head. Is that all that is? Is that world meant to be she, World War Two? Oh. She she thinks the Yeah, I mean they're all talking about Hitler. This is World War Two's about to break out and she knows it. But Rex and his well, friends Yeah, it's nineteen thirty six. So she just re referencing the revelation? The, the, uh, well, yeah. So, so the end of the world. Got, yeah. yeah okay. So they've okay. been right. referencing now, and we didn't talk about this, but but the English readers would know exactly what Wall is referencing. This is referencing all of these things about political instability. They have referenced. Uh, they didn't say Prince Edward by name, but Mrs. Simpson. That's Mrs. Wallace Simpson, mm -hmm. mistress of the prince, mm -hmm. who's going right. to cause him to abdicate right before the war, which is going to cause all kinds of issues for them. And so now it's coronation day of that Prince Edward. He's now going to become. The king, uh, and then he's going to abdicate right after this. Uh, they're talking, and but so she is very sensitive to the fact that things are unstable and there's rumors of war, uh, and and but Rex and his friends are like, ah, it'll never happen. They're gonna they're gonna cave the second we push back on them. You know, making them sound like gangster malls, but right, you know, right. they're just they're very overconfident that this war is never gonna happen. But which the of context, which is the telling that that's how he ends the chapter. 
Well, yeah, because the framing and, device is that it's the war and Charles is in the war. So the war is going to happen. Julie is the one who can see. She's got the big eyes, right? She can see. Do you know where Cordelia is right now? She's off She's as off a nurse or something, right? Nurses, yeah. yeah. Where? Where? I don't know. Where is she? She's in, she's in Spain. Spain, yeah. So what is that? Spanish? What's going on in Spain? Absolutely. She's she's probably serving on the royalist side for Franco because she got an award. But but that's that's where she is. And some of the references to, to you know some of these obscure references that are thrown out are referring to places like Franco's headquarters in northern Spain, um, Mussolini's palace in Rome. Um, Obviously, the German stuff, the Czechs, the Czechoslovakia hasn't been invaded yet, but the Czechs and the Slavics are, are mentioned. And there's all these there's all these discussions. There's even um, internal British polit- political stuff like Rex. Rex is only, I love that bit where Rex is only hope for, for personal successes if a war breaks out. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> so so but the last Trump... The last Trump is a reference to World War II, but with the tonality of it's the end of the, the apocalypse. End and of the world, yeah. The yeah. apocalypse, and 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 if and if not the global apocalypse, certainly Julia feels like her own personal apocalypse yeah. is coming. That her world is coming to an end. Well, I didn't mean to laugh there when you were talking about the end of the world, but I did just get a <laughs> telegram. Unfortunately, there's no words in it. It's an emoji of a man running, followed by raindrops. Followed by raindrops on an umbrella. I assume it means that Tim sweats so much we all need an umbrella. Followed by a, a picture of a woman, an emoji of a woman, uh, and then an emoji of someone yelling, and then an emoji of a monkey with ha- its hands over its ears. So I believe it's there's just a big something symbolic in here. I'm going to have to stew on this for a few days no, and figure I, I know out what it, what it could possibly mean. I, I know what it is. What does it mean? I, I've got close it. Reads. I've got it. I know what it means. Can you interpret my dream? It's a reference. I can't. <laughs> It's a reference to Coronation Day when Charles leaves town because there's going to be so many mobs in, in London. So he runs away. Remember, they talk about that in their memories. And it's one of the times when they were apart. So he has to flee. And it's raining because it was raining on Coronation Day. And then the king is going to step down. And so there's going to be a new person in charge. But happily... Churchill is going to uncover his ears and is going to save the world. That was incredible. So Churchill's uh, a monkey? Inspired. You said no, no. it. I no. got Churchill's a monkey. Chamberlain is the monkey. Chamberlain, Chamberlain is the monkey. Well, you guys, listen, these things aren't that hard. No, but I, I, I do want to say this. Especially when you make it up as you go along. We're out of time here. But, but well, the more that I think about while mentioning Wallace Simpson and the Prince, the the more that I, I think uh-huh. this is this is significant, right? Because this is an adulterous love relationship that is that is going to f- radically change England as they know it. Mm. it it's going to threaten mm. the stability of England. It's also a very modern thing, right? He's going to choose love over duty. Um, he, you know, he's going to give oh, up. Oh, oh. go ahead. Did you guys know? Sorry, did you know that Ribbentrop? who was mentioned in their discussion there when he came to England in 1936 was accused of having an affair with Wallace Simpson and vice versa. Ah, interesting. He, he's a German ambassador. 
Well, so, I mean, yeah, the whole our... adulterous. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, if any of our listeners have been watching The Crown, I mean, that relationship mm-hmm. also foregrounds everything in that episode, uh, in that series as well. Like, the, it just, you, you get the sense of how much it radically changed and threatened England and how they're so protective of not, you know, trying to recover from the, still as late as Queen Elizabeth, who's the current monarch, is still reeling from trying to recover the stability that was lost when Edward abdicated. Mm. So Americans reading is? this, are, I mean, we're just going to be like Mrs. Simpson. We don't know who that is, but like to the to the, the British, that would this would have been, yeah, this is all part of the world's ending. The king's going to abdicate. Mm. Well, like you said, I was going to say mm. we're out of time. Hey, are we not going to talk about? <laughs> are we not going to talk about um, the review of his paintings by Blanche? Yeah, that's one of Andrew's favorite parts of the book. We got to let that happen. Well, we are we out of time. We are out of time. Here's. Here's what I'm thinking. Um, we're going to talk next week about the last two chapters, and then we are going to have a Q&A episode, and people can send in their questions, and that's a great time for us to fill in some gaps. So that may be um, maybe a time to do that. Um, but, yeah, we're we're out of time, unfortunately. Um, well, it just means we can't understand the book, that's all. Why don't I ask for final thoughts? And you can uh, use your final thought on that. Oh, you want me to go first? But then you can't have any other thoughts after that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it, fine. I'll it, never final answer thoughts it right being, now. It being final and so forth. <laughs> well, I just, I just, I love to think about how he exposes the practical joke that Charles Ryder has played on everybody. And of course, Ryder isn't deliberately playing a practical joke on everybody. He, he's out actually searching. But when it comes down to it, there's nothing new there. And Charles knows there's nothing new there. And and just as Bridie exposes Julia just by saying the facts, so here Blanche exposes Charles as a painter just by not stating the facts, but sighing heavily and ending his, ending his uh, review or beginning his review really with, they tell me, my dear, you are happy in love, the paintings do. And I suppose what I like to do when I read that review is try to figure out what are the standards that Blanche is applying to art, because he's clearly a, regarded by Ryder as a master of the arts and of art criticism. And what it boils down to is charm. I warned you expressly, he said years ago, and in great detail of the flight family, charm is the great English blight. It does not exist outside these damp islands. It spots and kills anything it touches. It kills love. It kills art. I greatly fear, my dear Charles. It has killed you. And then, basically, he says, uh, Barm. Andrew? I'm done. All right, my last thought. We'll we'll, we'll (laughs) be back on that. Jane Austen is bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's witty and insightful. She's not charming. She's charming. 
<laughs> That's what Blanche is saying. She's charming. Okay, I'm done. Well, I've always found Anthony Blanche to be quite reliable, so... Hmm. I, I think Anthony Blanche is reliable. And I was just going to suggest that when I read this section, I thought to myself, is Anthony Blanche the Shakespearean fool? Oh. Right? He's this over-the-top, ridiculous person who says all these really insightful things and seems to sometimes be the only one who can see what's really going on. All these art as critics... As long as it's long. aesthetic, sure. Well, yes. I mean, in a very limited sense. Oh, I wouldn't call that very limited. I would call that much loftier <laughs> than pragmatism. But it's not spiritual, that's for sure. Right. That's that, That's what I meant when I said limited. I mean, I don't think he's insightful for all of life. But I, I kind of wonder if he's playing that role. You know, he's just this, he's over the top. He's almost like a court jester, right? He's comic relief almost, except that he, he says these insightful things. I can accept that. I couldn't ever... I can't take anybody as authoritative, though. I'm not supposed to be talking. I'm, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> no final thoughts on my final thoughts, Andrew. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm really sorry. Tim, any final thoughts? No, I cede my final thoughts to the four speaking Andrew and Angelina. <laughs> oh, Tim, I wanted to hear you say something. No, 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 no. I... My thought is, especially you, Andrew, this is your heart book, it seems to me. And um, I'm really enjoying, I'm enjoying, I'm learning a lot about this book from hearing you. So I don't feel a great compulsion uh, to speak as much on these episodes. That'll change if we do something else that is my heart book. (laughs) Heart book. Heartbook. Oh, I'm embarrassed. Hashtag heartbook. Why? Why are you embarrassed? Don't be embarrassed. Am I going to call Cormac McCarthy your heartbook? Is, that, yeah. is this what yeah. we're coming to? It's, he's what. He's what came to my mind. If we do a Cormac McCarthy book, I'll be battling for Which the one. Like, oh, probably. Which would is be, your heartbook, Tim? My heartbook is probably Sutri, but it's not a close reads book. Um, really? Huh? I don't think so. It's. I oh, meant. It's, I meant about it being your heartbook. Oh yeah. It's full of such ribaldry. Is that is that the proper pronunciation? Um, so is that because you're a ribald person? I don't think so. Sometimes we enjoy books because they're different than us. Though maybe I am a ribald person. Well, I certainly know that I am a British aristocrat, so. <laughs> yep. That's why my heart book is Pride and Prejudice, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well... Speaking I think of there's some cross-stitching I need to get back to immediately. <laughs> Speaking of heart books, I've got to go finish getting ready for this conference next week. Uh, I don't really know how that's related, but I'm sure it is somehow. What conference? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I've been living in a fog. We, you mean I have to prepare? Uh, by the time you listeners listen to this, uh, we will be en route to Texas. Graham and I will be en route with a car full of materials which we have to finish prepping for over the next two hours. And then um, we will be recording our live episode of Close Reads on Thursday night and then airing that on, you know, the Internet and so forth the following Monday. But if you are going to be at the conference, we look forward to talking at you and to you and 
for you. <laughs> With you. Everyone With you, should feel you. free to text me a reminder to pack Brideshead Revisited. Otherwise, myself. Get yeah. text myself not have, like, I'm worried I'm going to forget this book. Post, yeah. David, tell a stay books to bring some copies of it. Oh, yeah. All right, I'll, I'll mention that. I'll mention well, that. that's not a bad idea. The real ones. I don't want yeah. some second-rate edited version. Some, yeah, exactly. I want all three of them. Well, uh, I guess that is it. We're a little going a little shorter this week than the past couple of weeks, just because of the the conference crunch, uh, hashtag conference crunch. Someone can use that if they want. Um, but uh, it's been a great episode. We will we will read the last two chapters and the next. Well, we'll discuss the last two chapters, and then we will do our Q and episode. So we're coming to the end of Brideshead Revisited. Um, when we finish Brideshead Revisited, what happens to Dad's heart? It will. It will slightly burst. Deflate. A oh, <laughs> it will become unnaturally large and bright. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it a little morbid before that, but um, actually, that it sounds morbid. They have, medica- they have medif- medication for enlarged hearts. We yeah, need to gonna, get right on that. I was going to say that. Yeah, I'd be prepared. But uh, anyway, all right, that's it. If you uh, want to join the conversation over on the close reads facebook page uh you please do we'd love to have you join us you can just search close reads on the facebook groups little tab there on facebook and of course make sure you subscribed either to the just the close reads feed or to the podcast network feed over on itunes or stitcher or wherever you get podcasts and if you want to leave a review or a comment or something like that then we would certainly appreciate that um, and I guess that's all the business for this week, except, of course, that we need to thank Scola Academy from Classical Academic Press one more time. Visit scolaacademy.com to learn more about Tim's four classes that he is offering this fall for ninth through 12th graders. It's a great opportunity, and if you want to learn more, see the course descriptions, learn more about Tim, as if you don't already know everything you need to know about him from this podcast, then, <laughs> again, that's scolaacademy.com, S-C-H-O-L-E, academy.com. All right. Well, see all of you at the conference in about a week's see time. See the conference, about you guys. Sounds five good. days, four days. All right. Like that. See you soon. See you at the conference. But was it four? I'm going to see you in the conference. <laughs> the number for four classes, the preposition. <laughs> Let's hang up. Yeah, we probably should. I'm in Goodbye. the conference, four. on the conference, by the conference, with the conference. <laughs> For Andrew Kern and Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. And this has been another thrilling episode on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Talk to you later.